The Birth Story Love Letter is a unique offering that captures your personal experience. This offering is a keepsake or memento of sorts, a treasured capture of your sacred life memory, a love letter to yourself, your children born or unborn, your family and friends, community and ancestors. This offering includes recording space to share your story, edited audio of your birth story, and transcription of your birth story in both a digital and custom-created hard copy. This is our oral history gift, a story that should be honored by being heard, shared, and remembered. Stories shared in this manner are for the storyteller's personal use. They will not be shared via the BSIC podcast. Head to the Birth Stories in Color website to begin your love letter. Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Today's episode features Megana Dwarganath sharing a layered journey of a canceled wedding, being a pediatrician working within COVID, becoming pregnant and deciding to get vaccinated, an intense birth, and navigating PPD slash PPA. And we are very grateful to hear her truth today. Welcome. Hello, Megana. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Well, good. I hope that it's um, cathartic and allows you to just be able to share your story in a way that other people can learn from or, you know, just relate to as well. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family? Yeah, um, my name is Megana. Um, I uh, live in a very busy household these days. Um, I have my husband, Rahul, who's a psychiatrist, um, our daughter, Mira, who's seven months old, our two rescue dogs, Joe and Milo, and then um, my, either my parents or Rahul's parents also live with us intermittently as we couple together a childcare situation. And today was our first day kind of titrating in a nanny. So it's it's bumping in here. It's a party. <laughs> it is. It's a very beautiful thing to be able to have family support there, um, these early stages of development. Absolutely. So, yeah. I am thankful that you guys have that support. Well, me too. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about your pregnancy? Yeah. So um, I um, discussed with my partner kind of earlier in our relationship that I was really interested in having kids. I mean, I think we started dating when I was 29 and um, I came to New Mexico um, where we lived before um, as a single person and was almost ready to be like a single mom. I was like, I'm just going to do it. And then it turned out that um, I um, fell in love with my husband who I actually knew from medical school and came to New Mexico kind of separately from me. Um, and, uh, we decided that we would try to have, um, two kids before I started to get a little bit older, um, as people do in medicine. And, um, I um, had planned to um, start trying shortly after we were to be married in March of 2020. Uh, spoiler alert, we all know what happened in March of 2020. Um, and um, because um, our wedding was canceled and we ended up having a smaller ceremony in May, we moved up our entire timeline. So um, we started trying in March instead of um, July or August because I'd also planned to be in Tanzania for a month, kind of working with an HIV clinic out there. 
Um, so, uh, like many people, um, in medicine, I was a little bit like, oh, I'm like, cool, chill. We'll just see what happens. But then as soon as like, it didn't work the first time I was like, okay, I'm going to be tracking everything. And I got like the ovulation sticks and, um, was, um, really nervous for some reason that it would take us a long time. Um, one, because I was older and two, because I think, um, there was a recent, article about this, but um, people in medicine have uh, twice the rate of infertility as other women's. And um, in my own really close um, circle of amazing women that I was friends with in New Mexico, a number of my friends struggled with um, pregnancy loss and infertility. So I thought that would be me too. Um, And um, thankfully, we got pregnant fairly quickly. Um, We tried March, April, and then by May, um, very shortly after we had our little like marriage ceremony in a dog park, it was like, bam, it was very fast. Um, we had like um, been biking every weekend during the pandemic um, with our um, two closest friends. And um, I had come back from a bike ride and um, we were also planning to move cross country. So I um, was throwing everything away and I found a pregnancy test and I was like, I'm going to chuck it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pee on it. And then um, that's how I found out we were pregnant. And um, uh, pregnancy um, at the beginning felt very... Um, unreal, but also, um, it was just a crazy time. Um, we were leaving. So, um, we were moving cross country with our two dogs, which I'll never do again. Um, it was the middle of COVID. Um, we were driving from New Mexico to Pittsburgh. So that was taking us through like Oklahoma city and Indianapolis, kind of like huge swaths of the country. Um, I didn't have care really established. So I actually had um, a friend who was a nurse practitioner in the clinic I worked at kind of draw my labs right before I left because I was like, you know what, I don't know when I'll be seen again. And I'd had an ultrasound um, done very urgently um, as we were leaving just to make sure the pregnancy was viable because I was starting a new program and I would need to let my program director know that I was coming, not just as me. Um, and um, they did an ultrasound and they um, saw a sac but didn't see a heartbeat or anything else. So that kind of made me a little bit nervous. Um, we um, anyway kind of assumed that things were fine, got in the car, drove across the country, um, and then I established care in Pittsburgh, um, where my sister also lives. Um, we uh, went for that first appointment in Pittsburgh. Um, and the OB that I saw, um, was wonderful. And she was the one that delivered me. It was a group practice. I, um, elected to kind of go the OB route, um, just because I'd heard good things from, um, a friend of my sister's who trained here. And also I was worried that again, I, I think a lot of people kind of assume that they're high risk and I assume like I'm older and I don't know what things will be like. So, um, I'd probably want an OB provider um, versus other great providers. I've heard so many people on podcasts talk about having good experiences with midwives or during natural births, which I think is great, but um, I was quite, quite nervous about it. Um, and uh, we went in at 10 or 11 weeks and um, she couldn't find the heartbeat. And um, I, again, it was just like another layer of, oh, I really don't know if this is real. Like I haven't seen any bleeding or any like warning signs, but um, that's not good because she was one of the best people in the practice. So we went for an ultrasound um, shortly after, and that's when I saw it for the first time. So it was like 10 or 11 weeks that um, I knew that, you know, the baby was there. Um, So that was just like a relief, honestly, after all of that. Um, We'd, you know, been through COVID. Um, I lost both my grandparents that summer. We'd moved across country. Um, We just like needed a place to land. And 
I hear a lot of people saying that they waited to tell um, people that they knew, but um, we told our parents like the, the day the, the stick turned um, just because we needed some good news. Like it had just been a really hard spring. Um, so um, after that, you know, pregnancy went very smoothly. Um, I'm a really passionate runner. I ran basically um, through 39 weeks. Um, uh, there were um, an amazing group of um, women and men in the park I run in um, who had lived in the neighborhood for like decades. And they just watched me get bigger and bigger until I was hitting 39 weeks. And then they would just be like, girl, I'm going to walk you home. You do not look like you should be running here. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and that's um, kind of when I stopped that. Also, it um, uh, unusually um, snowed every day um, the, in the winter uh, last year in Pittsburgh. Um, so um, my husband also got nervous that I was like running around in ice. But um, yeah, I just felt so good and like so alive. And it was amazing to just like feel her kick and, and as I was running. And we had like a routine even before she came out. Um, and uh, then um, it started to get very close to my due date. And then it went a little bit over. And um, one of the things that um, I think I probably wrote you guys about was um, maternity leave um, policies were not great. Um, I have, I'm in a three-year fellowship and there's kind of 12 weeks total that at that time you could take and they've just modified their policies, so which is awesome. But I was nervous that um, I would use up all my leave um, for the baby. So I decided to try to go back at six weeks um, and I um, was going over. My leave had already been scheduled. So um, I had talked to my OB provider and I was like, you know what? I don't think I could go much longer because um, I'm going to need to go back to work this day no matter what. Um, so um, I had uh, multiple checks toward the end of my pregnancy and everybody was always like, the baby's so low. Um, you're a little bit of face. You're just not dilated. Um, I even had like false labor um, around February 14th and my due date was the 19th. And, um, you know, it just kind of petered out. Um, so I was eager to get the baby out, um, cause I was just seeing the time tick away, um, that I could really spend with her. Um, so, um, I elected to get induced. Um, so on the 24th, which was, um, almost a week, um, from, um, when she was due, um, my husband and I basically went in for an induction. I, um, joke with people that I was like checking into a hotel. Like we just like got our bags laid ready, like grabbed a coffee. Like it was just like, Oh, got some fun. Um, except, except you're getting induced. Um, and, um, I, uh, went to the induction suite. Um, we, um, heard a lot of the options, um, in terms of like what their arsenal is for induction. And, um, I think, um, like being in medical training, like, you know, some of those things, but you don't know what really any of it means or like what it does to your body or, you know, what it means in terms of your recovery. So I just was like, do what you need to do. Like I, I trust you. Um, and, um, I think there was a lot around like being a difficult patient and I really didn't want to be a difficult patient. Um, and I think it was interesting as a provider to feel that way. It was the first time I've ever been a, a patient in my life, honestly. Um, so, um, we went in for the induction on the 24th. Um, and, uh, I, again, was, um, 
a little bit effaced and the baby was quite low. She was actually like at like station zero or something like she was like right there. Um, so um, they just started with the miso uh, prostol and um, I got one dose and, you know, we were still feeling pretty good and like nothing was really happening. I was having contractions on the monitor, which I'd been having basically since the false labor the week before. And, um, you know, we were watching like a little bit of TV. I was reading a book. Like I, I just felt great, but I was like, I'm not supposed to feel great. Like I'm supposed to, you know, like have something happen to me. Um, and then, um, the OB came in and checked me and she was like, basically, you know, you haven't dilated very much. I'm going to give you one more dose of miso. And, uh, that one worked. Um, I, um, started having contractions every 45 seconds. Um, I, um, and then they were like, we cannot give you any more miso. Um, and we were not going to do any of the other things, which was like the Foley bulb, um, the IV Pitocin, um, and then, um, breaking the water, which were the other three, three things in their arsenal. And, um, I, um, went very quickly from the induction suite to the LND suite because of my very prominent labor. Um, later the OB, um, told me like, maybe today was just your day and your body needed a little nudge. Um, I'd also been listening to a lot of birth podcasts, so I was trying to stay away from like a ton of like medications or interventions. Um, I had gotten IV Tylenol, um, which, um, being on the other side of medicine, I know it's like really expensive and like pharmacists are like a little stingy about giving it, but I got it and it felt great. <laughs> um, and then, um, went over to the, um, L and D side. And, um, at this point, um, I had hadn't had an epidural or anything. And, um, I remember thinking like, you know, I really don't have much of a plan, but if I need it, I'll get it. Um, with the contractions as, as quick as they were happening, like I was able to like push through for a couple hours and then, um, they started to get really, really intense. Um, my husband was like looking at me, like you need like some help, like I cannot see like this. Um, and then my OB, um, uh, checked me a little bit later and my water had broken and, um, I had had my like bloody show kind of overnight. Um, and then she said, you know, you're, you're going quickly. Um, the next time we see you think about getting that epidural. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, and she kind of reviewed the options with me. Um, I really didn't want narcotics. I was nervous about the baby coming out a little bit drowsy. Um, so, um, I said, okay, like, let's get that epidural. Maybe we can get some sleep. Um, we'd been like up now for like more than 28 hours. Um, and so the anesthesiologist that came and did my epidural was a month behind me. So she was also quite pregnant. She walked into the room and she said, why didn't you get this earlier? Um, this is going to help you quite a bit. She was so fast, so amazing. I hardly felt a thing. Um, I did need some terbutaline to slow down my contractions because they were so intense that they were worried that um, I wasn't going to be able to sit still long enough. But I just, I held it together somehow and um, got it. And um, it was amazing. Like, just like a switch flipped. I felt better. I was like present. We were able to sleep. Um, and um after um, the epidural um, started, um, the baby um, uh, started to calm down. I should mention that like uh, shortly prior to the epidural, probably because the contractions were coming so fast and so hard, um, she started to have D-cells. Um, so they got a little bit nervous, um, put me on some oxygen and gave me some fluids um, right before the epidural um, went in. Um, so the D-cells kind of went away after the epidural, which was nice. We were a little bit nervous. Um, right before that. Um, that night was great. Um, I was super comfortable. And then um, shortly before I got checked again, um, I was like, you know, I feel pretty good, but I just feel like there's just like a little like 
like butt muscle contraction. Like I just feel like a little like cramp on my butt and that would be waxing. Cause how you play? I said, Oh, I feel great. But just this little like twinge. And she was like, Oh, okay. And then she checks me. She's like, you're fully dilated and uh, it's time to push. And by that time it was, um, six 30 in the morning on the 25th. So, um, it was like incredibly calm, actually. Um, I loved my OB and the nurses were, were great, but um, I was like, you know, I've never done this before. Can you like teach me how to push? And um, we did a couple of um, practice pushes. Um, the epidural was still working pretty well. Um, and then um, she said, you know, the head is right here. She's been low the whole time. Um, you can get it out quickly. And that's what I thought. I was like, I'm going to get this out quickly. And um, I started to push and um, I kind of was like, all right. And everybody was like, oh, we see some hair. And I was like, great. And I was like pretty motivated. And then it was like an hour and a half later and I was like still pushing and she still had like, they were still seeing a bunch of hair. And I was just like, you know what? I don't know if I'm doing anything or this baby just has a lot of hair. Turns out, spoiler alert, it was kind of the latter. Um, and um, that it seemed like... Um, there was like an issue just like pushing her out really at the end. Um, and later my OB would tell me like, I haven't done an episiotomy in like 30 years, but for you, I thought about doing it. Cause it was like, she was quite caught under there and your pelvic floor muscles are really tight. And a lot of um, people are told, are, are told that um, they will not have a strong pelvic floor. So like, you know, people are doing kegels and all of that. And I was running and probably it just like made everything super tight down there. Um, so I was finally able to push. And that was when I really felt like 10 out of 10 pain. Um, the epidural, like that's when I was like, it has like, it failed me. Um, and it was only for like a minute, but that was like definitely the most pain I've ever felt. And that must have been the crown of fire right as she she shot through and um, she fell out. Like once that head came out, that was it. It was um, pretty unreal. Like I just, um, uh, they put her on my chest and she was like wide awake and um, she looks exactly like my husband, except she has my eyes, um, but her eyes were open. And I just remember thinking like, wow, those are like my, my eyes. Um, and um, yeah, that was amazing. And um, I did feel like, um, like a good amount of pain still in my um, perennial area. So um, I found out later that I have like a, a probably a grade tube, um, uh, labial tear. And then I had like one, uh, periclitoral tear as well as like two sulcus tears that didn't need repair. Um, so I got a little bit of like local, um, to kind of stitch those up. Um, and then, um, I got a dose of Pitocin to help, uh, contract down my uterus, um, and, um, kind of got, got wheeled away. Um, and um, I should also mention, and I forgot to earlier, that um, during the course of um, my pregnancy, I was offered the COVID vaccine as a healthcare worker. There was a lot of um, debate about that. Um, I believe at one point, the WHO and the CDC actually had different ideas about whether pregnant people should get vaccinated. Um, but I really wanted to get vaccinated. I thought like, you know, it's bad for pregnant people to get COVID. And um, if anything, there could be some benefit with the antibodies getting passed um, on. So I was one of the few healthcare workers that was like very publicly getting vaccinated pregnant, like was on the like local news. And like, I think when I got my second shot, there was like a bunch of like cameras or whatever. And I was like, whatever you need to do, just get convinced people to, to get this. Um, but I was fully vaccinated when I gave birth. And um, that was um, like, a really nice thing because um, as it turns out, like it's showing up in your breast milk and um, in the placental transfer and um, 
I think like that was like a definitely un an uncertain time, but I'm, I'm glad I did it. So I know people have lots of ideas about vaccines in this country, but if you're hearing me right now, like as a pregnant person, like think about getting your vaccine. Um, so um, yeah, so the, back to that, um, the, the baby came um, with me to the nursery, like her apgars were beautiful and she like, you know, actually like latched incredibly well. I was super nervous about breastfeeding. Um, I am trained as a pediatrician. I just have seen so much emotion around breastfeeding and the struggles people have as well as like my own colleagues that like, weren't able to breastfeed. And I thought that was going to happen to me, but she basically crawled up and just like slammed herself on. Um, she just loves the boob, always have, like has, um, it went really well. Um, we didn't need to stay any extra time for jaundice, which usually happens because I get dehydrated. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we brought her home, um, like after 48 hours, I think, um, because everything was so uncomplicated and because it was uh, COVID, um, I was thinking about getting her home at 24 hours. And then, um, I was talking to my dad and he's like, just get some sleep. There's a nursery in the hospital that you can send her to. And, um, your like body needs to recover. And I think that was like the right choice. Um, I didn't realize like, quite how debilitated I would be from the tearing until after um like the epidural wears off and then you're like oh I just like there's a murder scene coming coming out from down there and you um yeah and I actually like was pretty knock-kneed walking around and I have never been physically like debilitated in that way so um it was good I had the extra recovery time and um I'll definitely talk about it in a second, but that was like a big part of, um, what generated a lot of, um, like emotion later on. Um, but, uh, we brought uh, Nira home after 48 hours. Um, she had, uh, very few issues. Like she really just breastfed well, was like the hospital record holder for the amount of poop she had in 24 hours of life. Like she really was like killing it. Like she's doing a good job. Um, and, uh, she, um, came home with us. Um, and, uh, it was like my in-laws and my grandparents and my sister and her partner that had all greeted us. And, um, that was great. And then, um, maternity leave just flew by. Um, I, um, started to like feel like progressively more pain from the labial tear. Um, I, um, would like have a very short, walk from my bedroom to the bathroom and um, my knees would just be like together the whole time. Um, it was really painful to like defecate or pee, um, especially because the tear was so close to my urethra. Um, I think I had this idea in my head that I would have a like a super fast recovery because I'd been so active and kind of everyone was telling me, they're like, oh, the baby's going to be out fast. Like you're just going to pop back up. And when I was stuck in bed and I like couldn't do stuff for myself, like being um, as independent as I've been my whole life and, you know, being so like lucky and healthy my whole life, um, that was really hard. Um, I also... Um, had a hard time with kind of the fever dream of maternity leave. Um, everyone's always like, oh, you're on maternity leave. And, you know, you think you're like, you know, baking pies and like reading books, but it's just like every day is so busy and you don't know where the day goes because you're just like getting up, feeding, changing a diaper, and then feeding again. So like that whole two hour cycle was just kind of unbelievable for me. And I was like, 
frustrated that my like husband got to go to work and like his body was intact and you know and mine wasn't and um right before the pregnancy like we were doing all the same things um we were both going to work and being active and having our own life and all of a sudden um this thing happened um, this wonderful wonderful thing in our lives but um i um wasn't going to work and I wasn't active and I needed help with everything. Um, and so, um, one of the biggest, um, things that helped me was that, um, I'm super close to my sister. And, um, I remember when I came home from the hospital, like everybody went to the baby and like, she and my mom like went to me, like that was like really like amazing. Like, and she just like held my hand and like walked me to the door. And, um, and that was just like, a um, indication of everything that came after like she would spend several nights with us she would like take the baby sometimes for a stretch so we could um get some sleep um both my mom dad and in-laws did that too I mean we like really couldn't have survived without their help they were just phenomenal but my sister was like really cued into the fact that I wasn't feeling super well emotionally so she would like sit with me in bed while I nursed um she um and then she like was like okay after a couple weeks she's like you're like in a hard place like let's figure out some like real concrete strategies to um get to a better place with all this and um we talked about um, having me like attend like certain things that were work related virtually just to feel like my brain was getting used for something else. Um, and then um, slowly I started to walk again, um, which was huge, just like getting outside and going for like a little loop um, in the park that I used to run in was like really amazing. And then she, I was like, you know, I really want to talk to other moms because I, I just feel like so lonely and you know this narrative of like women having it all um it's like really failed me right now like i i can't do anything that i you know was doing before and um and i have you know like guilt and, and fear and my body is not intact and um it's it seems like how could anyone avoid this after birth and why doesn't anyone talk about this um so I started a mom's group. Um, I um, have a big family, as you've probably already gathered, but um, I have um, a uh, my husband's cousin's wife delivered um, via C-section a few weeks before me, and then my cousin's wife delivered like a month after, and then my best friend growing up um, also um, had a baby in May, and that was like initially the core group, and it's still, it's gotten to like seven or eight people now, um, but like putting that group together has been like a lifesaver. Like it is the most active WhatsApp group that I have. Um, people are just super supportive and it was really nice to have that community to just kind of diffuse stuff. And all of us work. Um, I tried joining like a group through the hospital and I remember initially I was put into like a, um, a group that stayed at home, which is again, a great choice and um, really awesome for people that are able to do that or like want to do that. But um, I had a really hard time relating to kind of um, what their day-to-day -day experiences was, were. And then the other part that I will mention is like, um, obviously I'm Indian um, and that like does like it does um, influence the way like a child grows up or the involvement of family or like what you want to pass on. And um, in this group, um, my cousins um, and his wife are actually like both like first generation um, Indian people. My best friend um, growing up um, is also Indian. And then my um, uh, husband's cousin's wife um, is Australian, but obviously married um, into an Indian family. So um, there is just like, there were just like some really nice things to talk about in that group about, um, 
like uh, having your kid grow up and wanting to infuse like some parts of culture, but not everything and um, having like really patriarchal ideas like needing to go away or, or colorism, just stuff that I, I had a harder time um, talking to like a predominantly white group about. Um, um, so that was great. And then I, um, I love to write. So, um, one of the things that, um, like really helped me when I was in maternity leave was like journaling and writing. And then once when I was breastfeeding, I actually, um, did write an op-ed about, um, my experience, um, having the baby and how, um, I was really frustrated that the maternity policy, um, was what it was, um, which recently changed, um, and I um, heard back from so many women in medicine about like how they've had to leave or um, how uh, they had their own struggles with um, like postpartum depression and anxiety or trouble breastfeeding and how could like a board of pediatrics like not have more generous policies towards like mothers that it that it's training. Um, pediatrics is like 75% women and, and we need um, more comprehensive leave policies. And then I also just think so much about all the other people that can't breastfeed, like people that are cleaning hospital rooms, um, people that are preparing food in the cafeteria of hospitals. There are so many people that could be breastfeeding at any time in any environment. And it's just like unseen. And um, if it's unseen, there's not going to be a place to pump or a manager that understands that you can't just like hang out and wait till your breasts are about to explode. Um, so that's just become like um, a big part of what I hope to like also address in medicine going forward. Um, I work in adolescent medicine, so um, do a lot of teenage um, care, um, a lot of reproductive health, gender care, um, juvenile justice work. Um, but I think um, one of the things that's like popped up is I do check in with my um, teen moms a lot more um, and just see how they're doing um, because I just feel like like nobody's checking in on them. And if it's so hard for me who has everything, then it must be like 300 times as hard for someone that, I mean, oftentimes these um, women are by themselves and like um, holding jobs and going to school and everything else. Like this is a hard thing for anyone. And I just think we need to talk about it more and have more resources because um, it is like a reproductive justice issue. Like if you cannot retain working women in your workforce, you have a problem. And um, I think we are going to suffer um, in terms of every industry, but specifically in healthcare with the exodus of women that are burnt out and leaving, um, especially with the pandemic. Um, and then the other thing is um, both my cousin's wife and I are physicians. And one of the things that she brought up is um, I think the statistic is like, I want to say it's either four, don't quote me on this one, but 40% or 60% of um, women in medicine will either leave medicine or go part-time after six years of training, uh, six years after they finish their training, um, which again, just speaks to this idea that we have a lot of warning bells that our parental leave policies are not adequate um, and that we will be like paying for that because we have suffered a huge healthcare crisis in the last um, 18 months already. And um, a lot of the people that gravitate towards like jobs of service and caring for people are women. So need to get it together. Um, so Absolutely. Really I love um, it. I love the work that you're doing. That's feeding you as well, right? It's feeding your spirit and your um, things that you're passionate about, but they also benefit other birthing people and the experiences that they're truly having. Um, there was so much good stuff in talking to you and listening to you share not only the birth itself, but the pregnancy and everything leading up. Um, 
You mentioned that people in medicine tend to have a higher rate of infertility. What have been some of your um, thoughts about that in terms of what do you think is the cause? Yeah. So there was, um, I would really encourage people to um, read the New York Times article. There's actually some really amazing um, women in medicine. And I also want to just clarify, because I think like um, I'm trying to gravitate towards using gender neutral pronouns. Um, so maybe I should um, use like another word, but um, there's a lot of, you know, birthing people in medicine, I should probably say, um, that are doing a lot of amazing work about educating um, people about their options. But um, medicine um, historically um, was a field that was dominated by men um, or people that did not birth. Um, it um, still has a lot of vestiges of being patriarchal, predominantly white um, and affluent. Um, I think um, people that went into medicine um, in you know the past um, built their work schedules and their lives around like medicine as their first thing and then almost family as their second. But we're, the, the reason why we use the word residence is because they used to literally live in the hospital and someone else would be doing the birthing and the childcare. So training years are basically mapped on to a person's peak reproductive years. Um, And when you are working 80 hours a week, that is usually not a time when you are thinking that you should be getting pregnant. Or if you do, um, as several of my amazing, amazing colleagues have been um, able to do when I was in residency, um, you are on your feet all the time. You're working overnight shifts. Your cortisol levels are like through the roof. So you either have um, a pregnancy that's high risk um, at an age that's not considered AMA, or you're having a a pregnancy at a higher age because um, you've spent all of your reproductive years in training. Um, And so, you know, um, I was close to a group of like seven um, women in in Albuquerque where we did training and um, like one of them's going through IVF and another one had like a couple losses and, and thankfully just delivered a healthy baby. But um, I think we don't tell people that are interested in starting families in medicine like early, like this is a thing you, you might want to just think about it. Um, I think a lot of people throw out like egg freezing, like almost like I remember like hearing it when I was a med student being like, that's like crazy. I should never think about that. But um, maybe like think about it. Um, and, you know, because... I just think it doesn't get easier with time. Like there's always going to be something else on your plate. And I'm really grateful that we started our family when we did in some ways like COVID um, is the reason Mira exists um, because I think there would have always been some pressure. And then the other part is um, you don't feel like as productive as you were like before you had the baby. So there is like some career loss that happens when you have a baby in a field where it's just like every day, there's like some progression towards like the next level of training, the next fellowship, the next research grant or whatever. Um, And um, that's not super encouraging either to um, tell people like, oh, this is a good time to start a family. So there's lots of reasons, but I think the long work hours um, and then kind of the average age people are conceiving, I think it's like probably close to 28 for the average population, but um, the first child for someone in medicine is closer to 32. Um, which is how I, old I was when I when I had Mira. Um, and in some ways, I'm lucky to have even had her at 32. Yeah. You also mentioned not wanting to be a difficult patient. This is a common theme that I've noticed mm-hmm. with other doctors that have shared their story with us is that 
it's the same thing. It's like you've seen patients that are more challenging. And so you don't want to be that patient. And so sometimes things either get like slip through the cracks or you let things slide more. Um, what do you think would help a doctor patient overcome some of that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a super hard question um, because I have also had um, physician friends um, get completely ignored um, when they've like brought stuff up um, because there is like some like threat to the providers um, when they want to bring something up. I think my advice would be like as much as possible, like be your own advocate and um, like speak up because I think um, we need to let go of this idea of difficult patients. Like if that idea doesn't exist, then we wouldn't fear it as much. But I think we get so hung up on this idea of like, I don't want to slow people down. Like I know my OB is really busy because we've been there. Um, We are a little bit too generous with what we allow like happens to our bodies or, um, or we know kind of like the sequelae of, um, saying like, I'm really depressed. Like we, you know, we don't want to be bothered with like going down the route of like, you know, getting a screen flagged or, and getting resources. So I think, um, the most important thing for doctors is to stop thinking of themselves of, of, of using the worst difficult patient for themselves. Um, and just say like, what do I need to heal and get better? Like stop thinking of yourself of, as stop thinking of yourself as a patient and start thinking of yourself as a parent. Cause like as a parent, you would probably advocate for yourself more. You would probably like tell someone that you're depressed. Cause that would mean that you aren't able to care for your child in the same way. And maybe like that could be a way to work through that, but it's, it's hard. Cause I've um, definitely heard from like two of the people in my mom's group who are physicians that when they were like, please check my baby's sugar or like, I think my, I'm like worried about my baby. Like they were not heard. Um, and um, that wasn't like a good thing to be a physician in the system that they were working into. Uh, so, yeah. 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 The other doctor, we, one of the other doctors we had spoke with before, she said that um, she didn't know when she wanted to let the doctor even know that she was a doctor, right? It was kind of like, like one of those things, like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you just yet, but when it, when I need it, I'm going to put that hat on. Yeah. Um you did mention learning how to think like a parent. And when you talked about um, in your actual labor, when you were deciding which medications to take um, and any interventions that you wanted, you thought about how would it, it would affect your baby. Um, and it's amazing just how, and this is more of just a statement, not necessarily a question. It's just amazing of how that mind shift happens, even while your baby isn't quite here yet, that you start to consider them, right? Because it's not just you, what you're thinking of when you're in labor. It's like, okay, I can take this. This is going to be helpful for me. But what does that do to my baby? And what can that cause later on? Just like you said, having a baby that's a little more lethargic and not as, and you know, um, active can then shift her whole APGAR score, right? We might end up with the baby needing extra support just because I made a decision that affected both of us. And it's not to say that you don't do what you need to do during labor, but it's it's amazing how that just mind shift happens in pregnancy for people as you become a parent, um, especially the person that's birthing, because you actually see, feel, touch, and know what's going on between you and a baby, while the other partner usually doesn't parent until the baby gets there, right? So. Totally. Totally. When you told me that you're a runner, I knew, I almost knew that you had some pelvic health, <laughs> pelvic issues. 
<laughs> when you said the pelvic floor was since I was when you told me you were running up into 39 weeks, I was like, of course she had an induction. <laughs> and I was just sitting there like, nope, we're not budging. These yeah. muscles aren't going anywhere. <laughs> they were they were basically like little little jail for for her. Yeah. Oh man. Yes. Anytime because I also Laura Laura and I are both birth doulas as well. So we whenever we have an active like client, we're like, can you make sure you're actually not squeezing? <laughs> not doing as much what you need to just relax. Right? I oh my gosh, I wish I had seen a pelvic floor PT like early in pregnancy and through I think like, you know, if we do this again, like 100% gonna just check in right away because I was like, you know what, that wasn't, I should have uh, really thought about the fact that I might have the opposite problem of everyone else. <laughs> That's it. That's the one. You hit so many, so many great, great um, points in the postpartum, how, you know, creating the group helped you, walking, being in an environment, the settings that you were used to being, like going to your park, um, even if you didn't get to run. Are there any other things that you can think of that um, you would want listeners to hear and know about resources, additional advice, or anything else from your birth that you might have missed? Yeah. So I have like a couple things. Um, one is um, I think like mental health wise, like I almost think like every um, birthing person should see a therapist. Um, um, I um, really dilly dallied about it. And I think, again, um, a lot of physicians are like amazing at telling other people to like find a therapist and really bad at finding one for themselves. So if you are a physician and you are hearing this, like get a therapist, it's like good. Um, medicine is really hard. Um, it takes a lot out of you. And then on top of that, um, you probably do have some like perfectionistic tendencies and you are being dealt with the most chaotic um, interruption in your life you, you may have ever dealt with. Like this is the time to check in with someone. Um, I dilly-dallied quite a bit, but I did end up um, with a therapist um, like six months, six months postpartum. It's been amazing. Um, she has really good ideas because she's trained to do that. Like you are not trained to be your own doctor. So I think um, that is huge. Um, the second thing is um, like that mom's group like has really been amazing. I think like um, one of the biggest things I tell um, pregnant people I see now is like, you know, find other parents and make sure that you're talking to them. Um, because I think, um, no one will really know what it's like to parent until it happens to them. I have had a lot of conversations with people in my mom's group that like friends who are not parents, like don't always know what to do or those friendships, like kind of like fade out a little bit when you're like so much in the zone and that's like emotionally like its own um challenging thing to get through but having that group of core people being like I can count on them and I can tell them anything I think like find your people and find people that are like you and have your parenting philosophies as much as you can because you don't want to end up in a you know the quote-unquote mommy's group where everyone's like I only do this and then you're like I'm not doing that like I don't you know that that's not helpful for you um so that's really big um, pelvic floor PT. I wish I had done it. Um, I checked in with a PT once. It was like, honestly, my friend's husband. Um, cause I ended up with like, obviously I ended up with a running injury at some point. So he like helped me through that. And actually I was able to kind of run through after that, that happened around 20 weeks. Um, and then, um, the other, um, thing is to just hear as many people's stories as possible. Um, that really helped me just to know that there are all these ways things can be normal. Um, I think so much of, um, my 
job in pediatrics is to just tell people like things are normal. Um, and um, I, it's really hard to actually hear that when you feel like things are so abnormal all the time. And like, this is like, I'm the only one with this experience. Um, so it's great hearing other people's experiences. And then, oh, actually just have one more thing. It's um, something that was also very therapeutic for me was to just reach out to other um, new parents or um, birthing people um, before and after. Cause I think in the before phase, there's like a lot of like societal, like goodness that you generate. Like everyone's like, Oh, you're pregnant. Like sit down, like let's, and then like, I feel like postpartum people disappear. So check in with that friend, like three months after, like offer to hold the baby so that they can like go take a shower. I think um, the carrot onesie, you don't need to give it to anyone. Just get them like, like the, perineal healing kit stuff like I no longer um bring baby stuff to a baby shower I just get stuff for the mom like I I think like it's huge like we need to like stop ignoring people when they're postpartum um and like really have a like better comprehensive system of care than like a, a checkup six weeks after so until Absolutely. that happens, check in on your friends <laughs> yes yes you're right about that baby shower gift I remember one of my sister-in-law when she was pregnant I just bought her a jar of coconut oil I said, it does so many things. (laughs) I gave her just this list, like all these different things that you can use this coconut oil for, you know? I mean, seriously. (laughs) Totally. Oh my God. Yeah, we're we're Indian. We we love our coconut oil. Um, Mira gets baths in it. It's been amazing for diaper rash. Yeah. All the things. (laughs) All the things. All the things. That's awesome. Her sister's Thank lucky you. she had you. Like, <laughs> like this is this is what you'll actually need. <laughs> right. This is what you'll need. And I was her doula, so that was the other gift. Right? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing with us today. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was You're fun. welcome. Take care. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Birth Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com. The Birth Story Love Letter is a unique offering that captures your personal experience. This offering is a keepsake or memento of sorts, a treasured capture of your sacred life memory, a love letter to yourself, your children born or unborn, your family and friends, community and ancestors. This offering includes recording space to share your story, edited audio of your birth story, and transcription of your birth story in both a digital and custom created hard copy. This is our oral history gift a story that should be honored by being heard, shared, and remembered. Stories shared in this manner are for the storyteller's personal use. They will not be shared via the BSIC podcast. Head to the Birth Stories in Color website to begin your love letter.